Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. We have a very special show for you this week. We are going to play an interview I did with teacher and author Jesse Hagopian about the civil rights movement and the black athlete. It's a fascinating discussion. Jesse peppers me with questions. He's got his own stories. And it was all done and sponsored by the Zen Education Project. And people should look up their work, the Zen Education Project. They do an unbelievable series about the civil rights movement. And we did a session on sports, and I want to share it with you. So let's go to the tape. I just wanted to start with a reflection about sports and education as a teacher, because I think um, on the one hand, sports saturate education, right? Like uh, they're often the most visible part of any campus, any school. It's what everybody rallies around. But on the other hand, it seems to me that sports are often completely absent from the classroom, right? They're not studied at all in the K-12 curriculum. And I think it's often seen as not a serious arena of study. Right, and they're generally excluded from history class, from English language arts, from science. Um, and I just remember in 1995, one of the few times the Mariners ever made the playoffs, uh, there was a one game playoff, and I was in sixth period. And <laughs> I was listening to the game on one of those little trying to be slick ear devices, right, on the radio, and when uh, Luis Soho got that inside the, the park home run to win the game for us. I leapt up on my desk. I was screaming and I got in trouble for that moment. But um, reflecting back, I w- just thought, you know, if we learned about the physics of baseball in that class, they wouldn't have had to ask for my attention, right? I would have been right there. So what's going on with, with the sports and education? Well, before, before we I delve into that, I just want to say something about also sports in this series that you guys have been doing. Yeah. I, mean, I think this does also um, start to answer that question, at least from the perspective of historians or social scientists out there. Um, I would make the case that it is impossible to give a, a rounded and full picture of the Black freedom struggle and specifically the movements of direct action to desegregate the Jim Crow South without talking about sports. Uh, sports is a part of the story and not just a part of the story in terms of, oh, you have a black athlete on the field and that changed people's minds. But I'm talking about like actual direct action to fight Jim Crow. Uh, In 1960, Wilma Rudolph, who became an Olympic superstar after becoming the first woman to win three gold track and field medals, she refused to have her parade or receptions in Clarksville, Tennessee, if they were segregated. And this was actually the first instance of integration in the history of Clarksville, Tennessee. 
not sit-ins like we saw in Greensboro so famously, although those would come to Clarksville, but the first time there was integration was because Wilma Rudolph stood up and said, no, you can't celebrate me as an Olympian or as a champion or as an athlete and do it in the context of Jim Crow. I refuse that. That happened in 1960. That's when Wilma Rudolph did that, 1960. By 1966, six years, you have the end of legal segregation in sports in the Jim Crow South. In six years. That's an amazing speed of progress. Think about that six years ago was 2014. And yeah. We don't learn about any of that. <laughs> no, it's an amazing speed of progress. So how did it happen? How did this happen from 1960 to 1966? That profound change. One answer is obviously uh, the broader climate, the broader movements of the civil rights movement and sports sort of uh, being a part of that in terms of like when, when facilities become desegregated, sports becomes a part of that. But when we just see sports as a reflection of the black freedom struggle, as a reflection of the civil rights movement, it erases those struggles large and small to integrate sports. And I really wanna recommend this book right here uh, by Lou Moore. It's called, We Will Win the Day, the Civil Rights Movement, the Black Athlete, and the Quest for Equality, which is filled with all kinds of small stories that took place in small towns, maybe some of us haven't heard of in the South, where sports was the impetus for desegregation and sports was the site of direct action. Um, and it shows what the book shows by Lou Moore. It's such a good book, We Will Win the Day. It shows that all this integration happened not only because sports was reflecting larger trends, but for four reasons. First of all, the NAACP and the black press led boycotts of stadiums that had segregated seats, which cost the sports bosses money. Second, there were pickets at the stadium of teams like the Boston Red Sox, which was the last team to integrate in Major League Baseball. And people were assaulted when raising their voices to integrate sports. Three, you had the courts with lawsuits to integrate sports. And four, and this is an interesting one, all white teams were tired of losing. And that was like most famously uh, at the University of Alabama with Bear Bryant. Uh, enough losing in the Southeastern Conference, even in the heart of Jim Crow, pushed for integration. And then just one last point, Jesse, thanks for your patience. And oh, this yeah. is where sports differs from say, the difference between sports and say a lunch counter struggle, uh, you know, a sit-in or a demonstration, is that when it comes to sports, I would argue that there are two kinds of political athlete. You have the representative, and you have the explicit. By representative athlete, I mean athletes who change the world just by taking the field or by the court. Like think about Althea Gibson dominating the tennis world in that lily white country club sport. And just by taking the tennis court, she changed the world. But then you have, that's the representative. Like just her play changed the world. But by the explicit, I'm talking about athletes who refuse to play unless there were integrated accommodations or stands. People who use their platform to speak out. These are the forerunners of Colin Kaepernick, if you will. But all the people who use their hyper-exalted, brought to you by sponsors platform to actually say, wait a minute, I'm not going to play in the city of Houston if there are segregated accommodations. I'm not going to do that. And then actually the city of Houston changes its local ordinances to host these games. That's an untold story of the black freedom struggle. And it's very exciting because it shows that culture, which I think sports is a part of, is a key motivator and key lever for social change. Yeah, and see, I would have paid attention in my history class if you uh, had gone through that. <laughs> um, and I, I wonder if, uh, if other people also have noticed that um, sports is absent from K-12 schooling um, so uh, maybe we can put that poll up. Um, did you learn about black athletes and the black freedom struggle? Um, oh, there's the poll in your, uh, in your classrooms. In and, and one more point about that too, because I do believe that like, I, I've taught a sports history class at Montgomery College here uh, for the last couple of years. And one of the things I see is that a lot of students, they, they have no interest in history, but when you teach history through the lens of sports, all of a sudden they're picking it up and their minds are just exploding. And now they want to know about the Cold War. Uh, they want to know about uh, the women's rights movement. They want to know about the LGBTQ movement because talking about it through the lens of sports gives them something to hold on to and gives them a frame of reference. And I also want to say, uh, folks might be thinking like, well, wait a minute, but if you do that, don't you exclude the students who don't like sports? 
I just want to say my experience is that I really do believe that sports is for everybody. And we shouldn't feed the idea that sports are only for the select few. Like we mm -hmm. should expand the idea that sports really are for everyone. And the, the radicals in the late 60s and early 70s on campuses, they fought for things like universal physical education, for example, just because they believed that sports shouldn't be something for the chosen few and that we shouldn't have this divide between those who play and those who watch, which is far too often, I think, the feature, the fundamental feature in our sports society. No doubt, no doubt. And like how women's suffragettes uh, also believed that like riding the bicycle and taking the court was part of their, their liberation as well. Um, and to reclaiming spaces that were pushed uh, aside from them, right? Um, the thing about sports, which makes it such a great tool, is that we're taught that sports is this level playing field. And that if you're good enough, you get to play. Right. Unfortunately, the whole history of the United States is that we don't have a level playing field. And so the battle by LGBTQ people, by women, by people of color, by black Americans to actually have their place on the field has massive political ramifications because it holds a light to all the hypocrisies and contradictions of American society. Yeah, and it is really electric when you expose those uh, okay. and talk about history through the lens of sports. I mean, I just for folks to know, like I showed your video, Dave, not just a game, I usually show it every year in my classrooms. And, you know, some of those students who watched that video then led the entire Garfield High School football team in taking a knee, um, becoming like the first high school in the country to have the entire team take a knee. Um, it can be a really powerful lens to look at history through. And I want to um, dive into this history because I growing up. I hate to interrupt you, but about Garfield and it's such a great story and I've interviewed the coach who was there at the time and a and one of the players now uh, for this book I'm doing uh, about people who take knees uh, during the anthem and what it means to them and I, I love that athletes connect with that that history of sports and struggle I love that so much because as someone who is an athlete myself you're sort of brought up through the sports system to think that the only thing you should do is say yes sir or no sir or yes ma'am and no ma'am to your coach. And that's the extent yeah. of what you're allowed to say or what you're allowed to do. So sports is seen as antithetical to politics when there's this whole rich tradition that says otherwise. Absolutely, let's dive into that tradition. So, you know, growing up, I, um, I revered Jackie Robinson as the first player to integrate the major leagues, at least in the modern era. Because um, of course, Moses Fleetwood Walker back in the 1800s also uh, played ball. But um, then I saw, Mal I, I saw Spike Lee's Malcolm X in high school. And that movie, you know, I had to get the X hat. And that movie just really like transformed me. And I, I was moved by it. And in that film, it's got Malcolm X dissing Jackie Robinson, right? He, he basically calls him an establishment figure who is shucking and jiving for white people. Um, and it's a white power structure that's happy to integrate one black face into their league without making structural changes. And I think though, after learning more about Jackie's trajectory, I've really come to a deeper appreciation of the role he played in helping to launch, uh, you know, integrating sports and, and the black freedom struggle in general, but I'm hoping you could talk more about Jackie's legacy and, and the integration of sports. Yeah, there are so many Jackie Robinsons uh, and that to speak about Jackie Robinson as one person uh, does a disservice to the many twists and turns he took in his own intellectual and political life. Uh, Martin Luther King called, called Jackie Robinson a sit-in before sit-ins, a freedom rider before freedom rides. And I think that's a good starting point for Jackie Robinson in that he comes into Major League Baseball as a, a World War II veteran. And as for many people and for many black Americans, this symbol of hope that after World War II, where the entire country was marshaled to defeat fascist countries in Nazi Germany, that we were reaching towards a place that was going to be less racist going forward and where the constitution and its ideals of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness would be open for everybody. And Jackie Robinson was going to be the symbol for that going forward. Uh, the reality that Jackie faced was something 
uh, that was very similar to a lot of King's philosophy a decade later in that he was asked, he was really told that if he was going to be that first player, he would have to turn the other cheek, he would have to take all kinds of abuse, and he would have to be stoic in the face of that abuse as a way to be an example, uh, not just for other black players coming into Major League Baseball, but also for black Americans who are watching. Like he was explicitly told that, like you are a social figure, not just a baseball player, and you need to be an example for the black masses, not only yourself. And that Jackie was a very prideful person. So that lasted for him for till about 1949. Like he didn't last too long with that. And then he started to speak out a lot more and more about baseball and more about players better not mess with him and better not raise their spikes to him. So you had a much more defiant Jackie Robinson at that point. But then at, after uh, his playing career ended in 1955, he becomes a barnstorming speaker for civil rights. Uh, and he becomes somebody who was the most requested speaker by, by Southern branches of the NAACP. And the second most requested speaker was somebody you might've heard of named Martin Luther King. And <laughs> I always found that funny to me because I imagine people organizing a meeting and saying, can we get Jackie Robinson? Oh no, he's busy, fine, let's get Dr. King. Oh my God, right. we gotta get Dr. King. But, but that's how popular he was and what a, a figure he was. And he would end his speeches by saying, uh, if I had to choose between the Baseball Hall of Fame and full citizenship for my people, I would choose full citizenship time and again. And uh, the irony of some of Malcolm's critiques of Jackie Robinson was that Jackie Robinson in his speeches would talk about how, how even evil it was for him to be, for people to point to him, for white people to point to him and say, look at all the progress black people have made when the mass of people are left behind. And he said, I don't think the progress of one person should be a cover for the reality that the mass of black people face. And so his entire life was about a fight between the way he was held up as this establishment figure, which he was, and the possibilities for progress, and his own speeches where he said, no, 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 just because I've progressed doesn't mean there has been progress. Mm -hmm. That's why he was actually a part of the movements and thought it was important for him to be part of the movements. Now, he was also, we talked about a lot of Jackie Robinsons. He was also um, a diehard Republican. And this is something that you even hear Republicans say, say things like, look, the Republican Party isn't racist. Like Jackie Robinson was a Republican. Like you hear that rhetoric from the Republican Party sometimes. But the reality is that Jackie Robinson uh, was a Republican because he was born in Georgia and he was born through his mother's influence with a real distrust and hatred of the Dixiecrats and the Democratic Party. And then in the 1960s, though, when the Republican Party made their big switch, you know, in 64, they nominated Goldwater, uh, 68, Nixon. Uh, that's when Jackie Robinson, I mean, he said things like uh, the Republican Party is the party of violence. Uh, when, I went, when I went to the Republican convention, I know how Jews felt in Nuremberg. Mm. Uh, the things that Jackie started to say. So he had a whole realization in real time about the Republican Party's shift to being a party of racism, bigotry, and violence, which of course we're seeing the fruits of today. Uh, Jackie Robinson in many respects warned us very clearly uh, about that in the 1960s if you look at his speeches and writings about the Republican Party. And one, and one last thing about Jackie Robinson, because I skipped over it and not, not on purpose, but just because I'm talking so fast, is that Jackie Robinson was somebody who, um, until really the end of his life, he believed in the promise of America very strongly and that you struggle to meet that promise. And that, of course, is very different from a revolutionary like Malcolm X. But he believed in the promise of America. And part of him believing in that promise had a very ugly effect in 1949 when he, uh, when he, when he spoke at the House of Un-American Activities Committee against Paul Robeson. And, you know, he did so partly because Branch Rickey asked him to, but partly because Jackie Robinson himself was a cold warrior. He saw himself that. He's like, you know, I'm an American veteran and I see myself in opposition uh, to the Soviet Union. Here's Paul Robeson, who said something at the time that was very controversial. Paul Robeson said that Black Americans would not pick up arms to fight against the Soviet Union. And they brought in Jackie Robinson to condemn Robeson's comments and there's a whole story about the testimony that Jackie Robinson also made a blistering speech against Jim Crow, but he did also speak out against Robeson. And one of the most amazing things about Paul Robeson is that he was asked 
what do you think about Jackie Robinson's testimony? And he refused to criticize Jackie Robinson. He was like, I'm not going to get into that okey-doke. Those were not his exact words. But he said, I'm not going to get into that okey-doke of criticizing uh, the other famous black American to set us against each other. That's mm -hmm. not what I'm going to do. So Paul wow. Rope, who in many respects we can look at if we want to, is the first activist athlete in addition to so much else. Yeah. Uh, we we got to say that, you know, Paul Robeson deserves mention in this conversation and uh, for, for his heroism and his use of his own sports platform. No doubt. No doubt. So I want to um, jump ahead to perhaps the most impactful athlete in the struggle for racial and social justice, Muhammad Ali. But like many freedom fighters during the Black freedom struggle, he didn't start off with an analysis of society and a plan for organizing a struggle against racism and militarism. I think, um, you know, he really developed uh, as the movement developed, but then in turn, he also had a monumental impact on the Black freedom struggle and the anti-war movement. Talk about Ali's influence and trajectory. Well, first and foremost, you know, for the first part of the 1960s, you have uh, the Black freedom struggle in one lane, and you have the anti-war movement, which first and foremost, which first off against the war in Vietnam was largely uh, white. It centered around a lot of clergy and college students. This is in the early 60s. And so you have these two grand movements in two separate lanes. And then by 19, 1966, you have the most famous athlete on earth, Muhammad Ali, with one foot in both camps. And so you could say that Muhammad Ali played a tremendously important historical role in bringing those two movements together, both symbolically and in terms of his words, like the ones you see right there, connecting the war at home with the war abroad, which was very common by the late 1960s. But, but it was really Muhammad Ali who set the tone for that. And you could certainly make the case that that was Malcolm's lasting influence on Ali, even though they did have a, a famous falling out before Malcolm's death, which we can talk about. But to get to your question, you know, I think when we talk about Muhammad Ali too much, it's like it, it can be almost disempowering because we speak about him as if he lived on the planet awesome or something and then was brought uh, to the United States to show us all the way as if he emerged full, you know, like, like Athena out of the head of Zeus, ready to tell us all what to do when the reality is quite different. I mean, when he was, you know, Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. from Louisville, Kentucky, uh, when he wins the gold medal at 18 in 1960, he you know, said that you know, his hero was uh, gorgeous George Wagner, who was a professional wrestler. And that was his dream, was to be this great boxer and to be a big talker like gorgeous George. And you know, he, he would say things like after the Olympics, he said, to make America the greatest is my goal. So I beat a Russian and I beat a Pole. And for the USA, won the medal of gold. And the Greeks said, you're better than the Cassius of old. And he would say that and the press was like, oh, look at him, he rhymes. But so there was no political content to it. There was just this incredible amount of charisma and this love of professional wrestling and this idea of being a showman. And, but when he came back from the Olympics, and this is the story that some, some say, never really happened. Ali and his family say it did happen, but he goes into a restaurant with his gold medal around his neck and he's refused service of a hamburger. And then he took his medal and he threw it into the Ohio River. And that set him on a path of trying to find answers of like, you know, I'm, I'm so pretty, I'm so successful, I've got a gold medal, I should be the all-American boy, why aren't I? And that he was much more attracted to the politics of the Nation of Islam. He met people who were in the nation. They introduced him uh, to Malcolm X, and they had a very short but incredibly intense friendship uh, that absolutely changed both men's life. And I recommend a book called Blood Brothers, which is specifically about the friendship between Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali that's absolutely fascinating. But it was through that friendship that you see the political transformation of Muhammad Ali, and there's so much more to the story. It's, it, it's a complicated story. Um, one of the reasons why Ali is even named Ali, first he was going by Cassius X when he joined the nation, but him being bestowed the name Muhammad Ali, which was a tremendous honor by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, the head of the, the Nation of Islam, uh, was as a way to actually help separate Ali from Malcolm X at the time when they were having their very, very public split. So th there's a lot of complicated twists and turns there. 
Um, just as Jackie Robinson uh, regretted greatly that later in life that he testified against Paul Robeson, Ali's regret about his split from Malcolm was something that stayed with him for his entire life to the point that you know, I was at Ali's funeral in Louisville and the most moving speaker to me was one of Malcolm's daughters. Mm. Um, I believe it was, uh, uh, I can't remember which daughter, I'll look it up, but one of his daughters spoke so beautifully um, about the way that Ali kept his connection to Malcolm's family in secret for decades. Uh, so that's a part of Ali's life too. But I think one of the great markers about Muhammad Ali that we have to remember is how much he meant also to the leading figures at that time. Like Martin Luther King, uh, when he made the decision to come out against the Vietnam War, one of the things he said was, well, it's like Ali teaches us these issues are connected. And this was when all of King's advisors were saying to him, don't come out against the war in Vietnam. Stay, right. stay focused on local issues. Ali, I mean, Dr. King turned to Ali as a justification for why he was uh, going to be a, an activist against the war in Vietnam. So, and, and, and Nelson Mandela, when he got out of prison, one of the first places that he visited when he came to the United States was to visit with Ali. And he said that every time Ali won, there was like actually in Robben Island at the brutal prison where Mandela was, there was a system to let him know when Ali won fights. And when he would, he said he would feel like the walls of Robben Island had come tumbling down. Oh, that's beautiful. So there, there's so much that Ali meant also to a lot of the leading figures. Billie Jean King, the, the incredible uh, uh, rights activist uh, for women and for labor rights as well. She said that she doesn't see what she does is happening without Muhammad Ali and building on what he did. So that there's so much to him that's there in the 1960s that's so important that we can use not only to talk about him as an individual, but also talk about the broader social scene that was taking place in the 1960s. And I strongly recommend a, a movie called The Trials of Muhammad Ali, which is yeah, absolutely, has all kinds of amazing footage of him speaking on college campuses. Yeah, that, that, that's for sure. I mean, we, we could really do a whole session on just Muhammad Ali, but um, we only have about five minutes, unfortunately. I know. And there's so much more to go through with the black freedom struggle uh, and sports. But I want to make sure we touch on John Carlos. You wrote a book with the legendary sprinter with the fastest humanitarian, uh, Dr. John Carlos. And so I want you to just uh, briefly touch on not just the moment when he when he raised his fist up in the air alongside Tommy Smith, but also the movement, the Olympic Project for Human Rights. And then also, if you could talk, if you could talk about Wyoming Tyus, who is one of the greatest sprinters, most accomplished sprinters in world history, and yet her name is largely absent from discussions of um, the Black freedom struggle and, uh, and you know, uh, sports as well. I edited uh, Wyoming's book, which is called Tiger Bell, which she co-wrote with Elizabeth Terzakis. I can't recommend Tiger Bell enough. That book. I love that book. did such a good job of using Wyoming's story to tell a broader story about black feminism in the context of the Olympic Project for Human Rights. Uh, but everybody knows the moment on this call, I'm sure, of the people raising their fists. Here's a picture of it right here. Uh, and Mr. Woods has it as well. I love that we both have these hats. I guess when John said he was giving me the only hat, he wasn't telling, no, I'm just kidding. He didn't really say that. Um, but uh, a lot of people know the moment, but don't realize that it was actually a movement called the Olympic Project for Human Rights and teaching it to young people that what they're staring at there is not just a moment, but a movement is very important. Uh, this was a movement that organized to actually have a boycott of black Americans from the Olympics as a way to highlight racism in the United States. They said, why should we run in Mexico City? That's where the Olympics were, Mexico City. They said, why should we run in Mexico City only to crawl home? And they had demands that they were putting out and saying, we will boycott these Olympics if these demands are not met. And they included having South Africa and Rhodesia disinvited from the Olympics because they were apartheid countries, restoring Muhammad Ali's title. Remember his title was taken away because of his opposition to the Vietnam, his refusal to be drafted to fight in Vietnam more black coaches, uh, the firing of Avery Brundage, who was the head of the International Olympic Committee and he was a fascist sympathizer and the athletes called him Slavery Avery. 
which is not strong. You know, if your nickname is slavery, you're probably doing something wrong, I think is a safe bet. Right. And the, the boycott uh, did not take place. The boycott fell through, although a very famous basketball player did just abide by the, did abide by the boycott. That was Lou Alcindor, who later changed his name to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. But the bulk of the athletes, for the bulk of them, the boycott fell through. But Tommy Smith and John Carlos felt like they still had to do something. So they got gloves. Uh, they uh, got these buttons you can see on them that say Olympic Project for Human Rights. Uh, they took off their shoes. You can't see it in the picture, but they're not wearing shoes um, because as a showcase of black poverty in the United States. And they have this, and they're wearing beads around their necks to show the history of lynching and violence against black people in the United States. And they had this whole plan to do this. And this is where you really get to something amazing, but because before they could uh, actually institute their plan, what did they have to do? They had to get on the metal stand. I mean, if they'd come in like eighth, right. uh, they brought all this <laughs> stuff, they would have felt really stupid. And yep. so there, then you see something amazing. If you ever watch the footage of the race, you see John Carlos get a lead and then he's constantly looking over his left shoulder to make sure Tommy is right nearby because it doesn't work unless they're both there. In fact, John is looking over his left shoulder so much he doesn't see this other guy, Peter Norman, nip him at the end and get the silver medal. But Peter Norman stood there in solidarity as well. You can see on his uh, left chest that he's also wearing a button that says Olympic Project for Human Rights. And they were friends their entire lives. And when Peter Norman died, you can find this photo online. The two lead pallbearers at his funeral were Tommy Smith and John Carlos. So that they were extremely connected. And then they raised their fists. As John told me, it got so quiet in there, you could have heard a frog piss on cotton. That's what he said. And then they, you know, they, they left the, the arena and they were oppressed. They were denied jobs. They were denied their livelihoods. They were shunned by the US Olympic Committee. And they stayed in this wilderness of being shunned for decades until they were finally at long last re-embraced, which is why uh, Jamel Hill, the sports writer, she says in 20 years, the NFL is gonna have a social justice award named after Colin Kaepernick. And that's sort of a funny joke, but it's also oftentimes how history and politics works, you know, and that people are condemned when they're alive and then re-embraced once it's safe but then, God forbid, you try to apply the lessons of those freedom fighters to the present day, because then people will come down on you like a absolute uh, load of bricks. So that, that's a very short thumbnail of Tommy Smith and John Carlos. I can tell you that, you know, having spoken to both people, they have no regrets about what they did, even though they did pay um, a terrible price. As John Carlos said at Occupy Wall Street in New York, when we, we went out there and spoke, he said that uh, his only regret was that he couldn't do it again. Right on. So he, he, he was all the way in. He's a bad man. And I, I love the fact that uh, Wyoming Tyus uh, also ran in the 68 Olympics. And she won the gold medal and became the first to win the gold medal in the back-to-back -back, back -back, uh, Olympics um, in the 400 meter, right? They, uh, well, no, she, she in the uh, 100 meter. Yeah, she was 100 the 100 meter. Winner. Okay. People, you'll hear people on the on TV on sports be like, Carl Lewis, the first back to back 100 meter. It wasn't Carl Lewis, it was Wyoming Tyus. And yeah. she dedicated her medals to Tommy Smith and John Carlos, which was an incredible act of solidarity, given that the Olympic Project for Human Rights did, a, by their own admission today, people who were involved in it, they did a, a terrible job reaching out to women and uh, black women and trying to make black women athletes a part of the struggle. Uh, that was not part of their perspective. And so Wyoming Tyus, that was something that in 1968 upset her, but even though it upset her, she wanted to show solidarity with them because the entire world was coming down on the shoulders of Tommy Smith and John Carlos at that time. Everybody, I mean, they, they were, the, as John said to me, the fire breathing dragons of America and everybody wanted to slay them. And Wyoming was somebody who said, well, wait a minute, you know, that's not, that's not the way it is. So yeah. it was an incredibly brave act by a remarkable person who later became one of the founders of the Women's Sports Foundation. And she grew up in segregated Georgia in a very rural area. Uh, you know, her family were dairy farmers, uh, uh, very poor. And today, where she grew up, there's a huge park for kids that's called Wyoming Tyus Park. 
Oh, no. Beautiful. And wow. I don't know. Anytime I feel like no progress is being made and we live in a, in a hellscape, I think about Wyoming at Titus Park and it puts a smile on my face. Maybe Deborah can put up a picture of her with her gold medals there. Um, but we do have to transition to our breakout groups, Dave. I, there's so many more athletes I'd love to ask you about. And, um, you know, Kurt Flood is one maybe after the, the breakouts we can get into. Um, there, there's so much more to discuss. I'm excited to hear what comes of our, of our breakout. There she is. Um, sporting her gold medals and uh, a silver as well. Very quickly about Kurt Flood, can I just say something really quick? Sure. Really quick. It's just that uh, Kurt Flood was destroyed by Major League Baseball for daring to stand up for his labor rights. And today in baseball, there's something called the Kurt Flood rule, where you have, where you, you have to have uh, – you can only be traded if you consent to be traded if you've played for the same team for five years and have been in the league for 10 years. So now Major League Baseball has a Kurt Flood rule, which is why Jamel Hill's idea that the NFL will have a Kaepernick award is <laughs> crazy. <laughs> right. I feel that. Right on. Okay. So uh, thank you so much for dropping that knowledge. Um, and I think there's so much more to talk about after the, the break because we can talk about how that legacy uh, is being reinvented today and make some connections with athletes today. I'm excited for those discussions, but we're going to pause so that you can meet some fellow participants. And first question that we have for Dave says, what do you see as the primary difference between the Ali Jabbar era athlete activist and the LeBron James Colin Kaepernick era uh, activist athlete? A really good oh, question. There oh. You go. There you go. Um, am I good? Yeah, we can hear you. All right, cool. That's a fantastic question. I mean, I think part of it is separating uh, LeBron and Kaepernick as well, uh, in terms of understanding them. I mean, uh, Colin Kaepernick is uh, no justice, no peace. You know, I mean, that, that's what he's been all about. Uh, he, Colin Kaepernick is somebody who sacrificed his career um, as a way to really put this country on trial. I mean, just the idea, looking back, that he took uh, the national anthem and put it up for national scrutiny as far as what this country means and how you can talk about land of the free, home of the brave, uh, when you're also talking about uh, police officers killing uh, black men and women and not even seeing the inside of a courtroom afterwards. I mean, Colin Kaepernick's legacy is one as a freedom fighter. LeBron James has done amazing things as well, but he's done his amazing things much more from a precipice of power than Colin Kaepernick had. And Colin Kaepernick also, I would argue, started a movement. You talked about Garfield before, but I mean, we're talking like athletes all over this country, men, women, boys, girls, uh, people in the band, people who played ultimate Frisbee, and not just football players, you know, all taking a knee as, a, as their statement against racism and police brutality. And so that's Colin Kaepernick. So I think Colin Kaepernick actually fits really well with the continuum of people yeah. like Muhammad Ali. You know, these were people who were, were critics of the system, not merely people who uh, talked about that we can do better. Uh, LeBron James, because of his fame and because of his indispensable role in the NBA, has had a lot more security to speak out than Colin ever had. But I think the things that LeBron has done to raise awareness about police brutality from wearing the hoods in 2012 and organizing his whole team to do that wearing the hoodies after the, the, the murder of Trayvon Martin to just recently him putting out a long tweet about uh, Ahmed Aubrey, um, Ahmad Aubrey, Arbery, uh, has been very important work that LeBron's been a part of. And it, it really separates him from folks like, I mean, I gotta say it, like folks like Michael Jordan and that tradition of athletes who sort of define themselves more commercially as opposed to being political. Right, right, right. Thank you. Um, there's another really important question here that says, often in schools, sports, especially football, can really elevate levels of intolerance, toxic masculinity, misogyny, and more issues. What are some examples of athletes, organizations, teams 
that have specifically worked to counter the hypermasculine sports bro message that is uh, often part of high school life. Mm -hmm. Did you want to go first with that, Jesse? I know you had some things to say. Yeah, I mean, I've been working with a program here in Seattle called Coaching Boys Into Men, and then there's another program called Athletes as Leaders for the women's teams. And they've joined together um, to make a, a organization called Team Up Washington. And it's all about a curriculum that is delivered by coaches about healthy relationships, about sexual assault, uh, you know, about um, gender-based violence. And uh, it has been transformative at at my high school here in Seattle, every single sports team goes through the training and the curriculum and the students who go through it, uh, I talk to them about it in my classrooms and they have um, learned so much about the ways that sports culture can reinforce toxic masculinity, but also the ways that they can speak out against that. Um, and it's been really amazing to see that program just start to take hold here in our region. And, and I hope um, that coaches who are on this call will consider bringing that to their school. Fantastic. Yeah, there, there's another organization, the Positive Coaching Alliance. And there's an amazing person people should look up. He played for the Baltimore Colts way back in the day. His name is Joe Ehrman, E-H-R-M-A-N-N, E-H-R-M-A-N-N. -N. And he does the Positive Coaching Alliance. And a lot of what he does is how do you coach football as a way to actually untangle the toxic masculinity that is so often seems like it's baked into the cake of the game. Uh, he has a case that says, no, you can actually use team sports to fight against that and work against that. And that's what Joe Ehrman has spent his life doing. And you know, it's appropriate for this discussion to say that one of the things that influenced Joe Ehrman to think about football differently was reading Howard Zinn and the way Howard Zinn uh, wrote about history coming from an entirely different point of view. He's like, well, why can't we coach football in an entirely different way as well and from a different point of view? And Joe Ehrman's, the central part of his analysis is that there are two kinds of coaches, uh, the transactional and the transformational. A transactional coach and I'm sure people are familiar with this kind of coach, is the person who does it for themselves. So they feel good. They love having power over their athletes. And that kind of coach and those kinds of teams is often where you see the toxic masculinity develop in a big way because, you know, young people act as they are taught. And the way they are taught in this very toxic atmosphere, which so often accompanies football, then reflects itself in the larger student body. But the transformational coach is so very different. Uh, the transformational coach is actually trying to think about how to untangle that web. And at schools where there's been transformational coaching, which sounds like, Jesse, the kind of work that you've been involved in, uh, yeah. the transformational coaching actually makes a huge difference uh, when it comes to interacting. And, um, and I, and I got to give a shout to, oh my God, if I, uh, Brenda, I can't remember Brenda's last name. She's got an organization called Set the Expectation. And it's about specifically fighting sexual assault and sexual violence um, in sports. And right. it, it's uh, and the work she, she speaks to like all the big teams. Um, and she's, she's absolutely amazing and tireless in this work. Awesome. And Brenda Tracy. Brenda Tracy, Brenda Tracy. And the work that I've interviewed her a couple of times. And uh, one of the things that Brenda Tracy does is that she then enlists the football team and not just correcting their own behavior, which is kind of narrow in her view, but actually then being like leading at a leading edge of the camp on the campus of saying, this is not how, you know, men can stop rape basically. And saying yeah. that, yeah, we have a role to play as football players and setting an ex expectation for everybody around us, not only for ourselves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that leads to another question that we should, uh, talk more about, which is the role of black women athletes throughout history who have been part of transforming both athletics and broader society. I mean, we could talk about everyone from Rose Robinson back in the day to, to Maya Moore today, who, you know, just quit her at the height of her basketball career to go fight for the life of an innocent man, Jonathan Irons. And I've actually been 
honored to get to work with her on that campaign with Athletes for Impact. Absolutely amazing. Uh, Maya Moore taking two years off of her Hall of Fame prime career to fight for the freedom of Jonathan Irons. I mean, this should be remembered historically, like we think about people like Muhammad Ali, like we think about Colin Kaepernick. I mean, because Maya Moore is, I've interviewed her a couple times as well. She is absolutely the real deal. You mentioned Rose Robinson. For people not familiar with her, uh, in 1958, she refuses to stand for the national anthem in protest of the Cold War and the U.S. buildup of nuclear weaponry against the Soviet Union. She refused, to, even though she tied for first in the, um, I believe it was the, the AAU tournament that she was in, the national AAU tournament. Um, she does the track and field championships. She doesn't go to Moscow with her team because she rightly calls out a program that was happening in the 1950s where black athletes would tour uh, countries, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa and the Soviet Union, as a way to sell the idea that racism was not a big deal in the United States or that we were getting over racism in the United States. She called out the hypocrisy of that program and uh, refused to go to Moscow. So Rose Robinson's story is amazing. Uh, she later went on a hunger strike uh, and was, uh, after refusing to being a tax resistor, because um, she didn't want her, her money to fund nuclear war and she was hospitalized in prison. So uh, an amazing person. I really wanna mention if people look up the scholarship of Amira Rose Davis at uh, University of Pennsylvania, oh, no, Penn State, I'm sorry, Penn State, it's a lot to remember. Uh, Penn State, her name's Amira Rose Davis and the work that she's done about black women athletes is so important because the history runs very deep and oftentimes was less recorded in the black press, but it was going on and it was very active at the time. There was this poll taken, I think in the 1920s in Chicago by the Chicago Defender, uh, which was the black press about uh, your favorite athletes and about almost half of them were black women who did sports in Chicago and yet there wouldn't be articles about them. I mean, so there is this rich history and rich culture um, of sports as a mode of survival by black women in this country. No doubt. Excellent. Um, we only have like another four minutes here uh, for this discussion. It's been great. I just wanna remind folks, <clears throat> if you do have to drop off, please fill out the evaluation uh, form before you do. And um, it's, in the, it's in the chat, so check that out. We have another question that says, what kind of progress in labor rights and affirmative action have come out of action from athletes? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I don't know about the affirmative action piece. Labor rights, I mean, I think it was very important in the 1980s when labor was getting beaten up at every turn that the Major League Baseball Players Association became arguably the most consistently strong union in the United States. And the NFL Players Association, even though they lost the strike of 1987 where scab football came in, uh, they held armed picket lines. And uh, off and some in states where it was legal to brandish firearms. Um, I think one of the issues that, that we confront when we talk about labor and sports um, is oftentimes the labor movement broadly doesn't look at them as actual real workers because they're athletes and they make these huge salaries. Uh, the NFL Players Association is the only sports union that's part of the AFL-CIO, uh, and they all should be part of the AFL-CIO. I mean, they should be actively building solidarity with other workers, but you don't see that because um, it's generally viewed as, unfortunately, as Bob Lipsight once said, the toy department is sports. And, you know, everything else is serious work. But I think that if, if there's more interaction, if we can build more interaction and more solidarity between the labor movement and sports unions, you can actually give a shot of the arm to the whole labor movement. Because, you know, newspapers used to have like a labor reporter and somebody who covered the labor beat. Like that's been written out of newspaper budgets a long time ago. But when, when athletes are locked out or go on strike, all of a sudden people are actually talking about labor. Right. Right, excellent. I mean, what a rich discussion. Uh, so many years we've covered, and I hope that this has inspired teachers to bring 
sports history into their their classrooms and into all their subjects. Yes, get that book. Get all of Dave's books. Um, yeah, I wrote some books, but I'm not you know, <laughs> recommending them. I'm recommending Lou's book, uh, We Will Win the Day, The Civil Rights Movement, The Black Athlete, and the Quest for Equality. Right on. Excellent. I'm going to get that book my, myself. And I hope that, um, yeah, teachers will seek out those resources, bring them to their classrooms, and maybe just read the sports page more often and get to know people like Megan Rapino and Maya Moore uh, and Michael Bennett, who are um, helping to lead a new generation of activist athletes. Check out the group Athletes for Impact. You can go to athletesforimpact.org and um, you know, it's a group that I'm organizing with and you can uh, learn about athletes today that are fighting back. We have a campaign against human trafficking going on right now. We have the campaign to support Maya Moore and her fight to get Jonathan Irons, a free man out of prison, uh, an innocent man out of prison. Um, and uh, I really am looking forward to hearing from, from teachers around the country how they're integrating sports more into their curriculum. So thanks so much, Dave, for joining us today for this discussion. Well, I, I mean, I mean, you know, for me, this is such a joy. I believe in the the mission of the Zen Education Project so much, um, and the work that uh, Deborah Mancart and others have done over the years. It's 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 the kind of work that builds movements and changes the world. So, anything I can do to be even a small part of that is an absolute joy. Right on, man. Appreciate you. Uh, so thanks everybody for joining us. I feel like this really breaks down the alienation uh, of being in, under quarantine and in these really difficult, challenging times, trying to get through this COVID era. Uh, um, arming ourselves with this history is gonna be really important for when we can go back into the streets and into our classrooms and bring these, these lessons. So we want your feedback on this session, the content and the format. We put a link in the chat box, but before doing the evaluation, please unmute yourself and give your thank yous to Dave Zirin. Stop it. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.